Please turn to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's completely cool. And we'll try and put it on the screen for you anyway. But if you have one, you can go ahead and get it out. Last week, Brendan opened up God's Word to Matthew chapter 1. And we looked at the whole premise of hope announced. Looking at what the angel Gabriel was saying and all that that angel was saying to Mary and Joseph ahead of the birth of Jesus. Today, I want us to look at hope arrived. Now, often at Sovereign Grace, we take big chunks of Scripture. But today, we're just going to do one verse. It's a very well-known verse. It's a verse that's spoken by the Saviour himself. And so let's read John 3, verse 16 together. It says as follows, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, would you reveal the word to us? Would we be freshly amazed at what Christmas is all about? Would we be freshly affected by all that you've done for us, each and every one of us in this room? Would we go away with our hearts changed? Lord, only you can do those things. No preacher can change a heart. But a saviour can change a heart in a moment. And so, Lord, did you work through these words, your words, to minister to our hearts. In your precious name, amen. You know, one of the books that I mention a lot in preaching, one of the books that's our favourite book as a family, is one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. For those of you that know our family, we were pleased when it came out as a movie as well because that means we can just watch it in a shorter space of time than read the book. And we do, we watch it quite a lot. We love it as a family. It's the story of Peter and Edmund and Susan Lucy. They go through the, the magical wardrobe and they enter into the magical world of Narnia and their lives are, are changed and affected and they meet this incredible lion called Aslan. Well, the following is a brief and well-written synopsis of that book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. This is what the author says. And it relates to what we're doing today. In the first of the Chronicles of Narnia, young children go through the back of a wardrobe and enter into a whole new world, the world of Narnia. But that world is enslaved under the spell of a witch. It is the middle of winter. And as the book says, it is always winter and never Christmas. But rumour has it that Aslan, the great king from far beyond, is coming. And spring is beginning to burst forth. Aslan finally does come. But one of the children betrays the group for a piece of Turkish delight and comes under the dominion of the witch. Aslan, to free the boy, gives himself to the witch who gleefully kills Aslan on a great stone table. Of course, the children are horrified as they see their beloved Aslan being killed. But when they go back the next day to find the body, it is gone. They approach the hill and see the altar where Aslan was slaughtered and they're mystified and confused because all they see is that there is a big crack in the stone. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colours and shadows were changed and for a moment they couldn't see the most important thing. And then they did. 
The stone table was indeed broken into two pieces from end to end, but there was no Aslan. Oh, cried the two girls rushing to the table. It's just too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, cried a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They turned around, and there shining larger than they'd ever seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan. Oh, Aslan, cried both of the children, staring up at him as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, said Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and the rich smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? he says. Oh, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him in kisses. And then Susan asked, as they sat with Aslan, but what does it all mean? Aslan, what does it all mean? You know, I submit to you that a more important question for Lucy does not exist. See, Aslan in the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote the book to try and show us Jesus and all that Jesus did. And so when Lucy is talking to Aslan as the resurrected king, she needs to know and wants to know, what does it all mean? And I submit to you for us today, as we come to Christmas, a more important question for us does not exist either. See, Christmas is a busy season, isn't it? We even call it the crazy season. And we have five children, so we know how crazy it is. There's a lot of presents going on, there's a lot of present wrapping going on, there's end of year parties, there's end of year you know, like presentation days at all the different schools and preschools. There's a lot going on. Everything gets really, really busy. And then now and again, you do have that brief recollection that Christmas, I think, is about more than these things. I think Christmas is something to do with Jesus. And you see a stained glass window or a picture on the TV. Or you go along to your kid's school play and it's an nativity. And your little Johnny is dressed up as a cow again. Last year he was a shepherd with one of your tea towels around his head. But this year he's a cow. He's got promoted. Next year he might be baby Jesus. And that will be traumatic for everyone. But you still have this slight understanding that I think Christmas is about Jesus. And yet I think for so many even though they have a vague understanding that it's about Jesus and they understand this idea of the nativity and Jesus coming into a manger, the question of what does it all mean still remains. What does it all mean? Why did he come? What was the point? Why Bethlehem? Why was he born? Why did he bother doing this? What does it all mean? Well, with that important question in mind, that's why I have us focusing this morning on John 3.16. Because in John 3.16, we discover, as we survey Christmas, what it all means. 
See, if you're here today, then as a Christian, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour, then I want to encourage you, as we survey Christmas, as we survey John 3.16, I trust that it comes to you freshly and it encourages you all the more to fall on your knees before Him. Because when you realise what Christmas is actually all about, worship and adoration, I think, is our only response. When you realise all that He's done, just like the wise men and the shepherds and everybody else that gathers around Jesus and the angels, worship is the only response. As you realise this is incredible truth. This is astounding truth that he would come. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have my deepest respect that you are here. And it's my prayer for you that as we survey Christmas in John 3.16, that you will freshly understand who you are before the Lord. And you will freshly understand who he is. And you will run to him and flee to Jesus Christ and you will be saved before the end of the meeting. So what does it all mean? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand as part one of three parts that the Christmas story begins with God. Listen, for God so loved the world. It starts with him. It's his initiative. He is at the bottom of it all. It all begins with God. You know, growing up, um, I always used to go to church. I got made to go to church. And I used to think of God as, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Like a genie in the lamp type of idea. If somebody had actually asked me to sort of paint God, I would have probably painted Father Christmas just in different clothing. You know, that's what I would have thought. He's just a nice guy. He's a really lovable type of guy. And if you're in need, you know, you can run to him and ask him for help. So if stuff's really kicking off in our lives, then we can cry out to God for help. And hey, he's got big red rosy cheeks. He'll probably help you. He loves people. That's what I thought of as God. And the truth is, God is good. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that God is good, but he is not altogether safe. See, Hebrews 12 verse 28 says, God is a consuming fire. That doesn't sound like Santa Claus. God is a consuming fire. And the caution that then is attached to that verse is that we should therefore worship him with reverence and awe. God is good, but he's not safe. And the reason why he's not safe is because God is completely holy. Now often we think of holiness or to be holy as to be like the Pope or to be like a priest. If you ask somebody in Britain what holiness is, they'd probably describe for you a church building or stained glass windows or nice holy candles. We're not even sure what a holy candle is, but just this, this thing that's like, oh, it's, it's, it's holy. But biblically defined, to be holy simply means to be set apart. And that's exactly what God is. God is set apart from us in so many ways. He's set apart from us first and foremost in his capabilities. I mean, check this out. Listen, Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? The writer Isaiah is bringing us into like a workshop. And the thing on display, the project, is the earth and the stars and the entire universe. And the writer's premise is who, who can do that? Who can build that? And very quickly as you look around it, you realise, well, I can't. To which point the writer wants to help us see, yeah, you can't, but God can. 70% of the world's, um, ocean, 70% of the world's 
idea and, and, and edge is, is covered in water. 70% of the world. Now, last time I flew home from the States, came via Dallas, 14 hours flying over water very fast. You know, you just think, please do not let this thing go down seven hours in because no one is coming. But there is so much water. Every time you look out the window, all you can see is water and water and water. That's just one ocean. Who can hold all of that water in the hollow of his hand? Not me. It says in the Bible, God can do that. Just in the hollow of his hand. Every piece of water that you see in the earth, just in the hollow of his hand. Man has tried and failed to calculate the distance across the universe. NASA cannot do it. The excuse they use is that it is still expanding. No one can measure it. But clearly in the Bible, God can. Just with his hand. From the tip of his thumb to the edge of his finger. God can measure it in a moment. Mountains and hills. Himalayas, the Alps, the Andes, the Pennines, the Rocky Mountains. Vast, vast mountain ranges. We can't weigh them. No one can weigh them, but God can. He puts them in a balance like dust before him. And he weighs them. And Job tells us in, in chapter 26 verse 14 that these are just the outer fringes of his works. Isn't that amazing? This is how above and beyond us God is in every way. He spins the galaxies, he holds the waters, he measures the weight of the mountain ranges. Consider your body. I was reading a book called Springboard some time ago and this is how they describe the body. It says, perhaps the greatest proof of the Creator's existence is when you gaze into the mirror. Contrary to common belief, your lungs are more than just bags to breathe smoke into. They are designed to filter oxygen out of the air you breathe. These incredible organs contain 300,000 million tiny blood vessels called capillaries. Your entire blood supply washes through your lungs once every minute. In your lifetime, the marrow in your bones will create approximately half a ton of red blood cells. You have focusing muscles in your eyes that move an estimated 100,000 times each day. That same eye has within it a retina that covers less than a square inch and yet contains 137 million light-sensitive cells. A wide-eyed Charles Darwin once said, To suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Agreed. Your brain contains within it 10,000 million neurons and microscopic nerve cells. Your stomach, which produces four pints of gastric juice each day, has 35 million glands lining it. And next time you eat a delicious meal, be thankful for the 8,000 taste buds that were put into your mouth. Imagine how boring eating would be without them. And our bodies are incredible pieces of ingenuity. They are incredibly designed. And the Bible's clear they are designed by God and he sustains them, which is the only reason why your heart is still going in this moment. And your eyes are still working so that you can see me. And your lungs are still functioning so that you're breathing. He creates us and he sustains us. Consider the stars. There are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe and in each of those galaxies there are 100 billion stars. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26 it says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Look up at the stars, my friends. God created them. He breathed them forth himself. 
He names them. I had trouble naming three children of my own. He names all the stars of the heavens and then sustains them so that not one is missing. We serve a Creator and have a Creator who is far beyond us in every way. He is far set apart from us in His capabilities. But that's not all. He is also completely set apart from us in His moral purity. See, God is set apart. And part of that separateness means that He is holy and therefore completely separate from sin. And that is really hard to imagine. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, says about it this way. He says, We cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. So we can't imagine our great-grandmother that we've only heard everything beautiful about times it by a million and say, Oh, that must be what God's like. Now, he's infinitely better than that. He's without comparison. No, Tozer writes, God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. My friends, God is completely above and beyond us in his capabilities, and he is completely above and beyond us in his moral purity. He is completely separate from sin, and he completely separates himself from sin. And that is what gives us such a major problem. The second part of the Christmas story is our greatest problem. The reality, if you will, of who we are in our sinfulness towards a holy God. See, if we headed out into the streets of Hornsby, we go down to Westfield while people are trying to shop, they wouldn't like it, but if we did it, and then shoved a microphone in their face and said, hey, just one quick question. First thing that comes into your mind, just tell me, what do you believe is our greatest problem? I wonder what people would say. I think you'd probably get a selection of answers. I did it once in the UK. It was kind of awkward because British people are very reserved, but it was fun. And this is what people say. These are the types of things people say. Some people say, well, I think man's greatest problem, I think our greatest problem is sickness and disease. AIDS and cancer and heart disease. People are dying just way too young these days. You never know when your time might be up. I think our greatest problem is sickness and disease. Other people today might say terrorism. I think ISIS. All what they're doing is frightening. Maybe they're going to try and take over the world. How long have we got? And they believe that to be man's greatest problem. Other people may say crime. I just think the crime rate is increasing so much now. and it, it, It's a concern for me. and A concern for us is our family. Other people may think closer to home. What's our greatest problem? Well, I think our greatest problem is education or lack of jobs or the economy. Some people would probably even say, I'll tell you what the greatest problem is around Hornsby and around this area, Sydney's house prices. That's what greatest problem is. You can never get in the housing market. First time buyers, you've had it. All these problems are what people tend to think of as our greatest problem. But our greatest problem is biblically defined as none of those things. Our greatest problem, according to the Bible, is not sickness or terrorism or crime or house prices or education or economy. Our greatest problem, according to the Bible, is our own sin. It's our sin. And it's our sin 
in light of the holiness of God who created us and to whom we will one day give an account. See, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. We can't avoid it. Can't get out of it. It's clear in the Bible we die and after that we face judgment. Now for some this doesn't appear to be a problem. Because for some they just disbelieve it and decide, well I just think when you die nothing happens. Okay. For other people they say, well I believe when you die then I think, you know, probably like reincarnation. You might come back at something else and you might come back at something else after that and you just, you know, it just sort of goes around in circles. Okay. For other people, they say, well, I believe when you die, if you've done all right in this earth, you get a purgatory. You go sort of in this middle sort of state and you sort of work hard in purgatory and if you work hard in purgatory and really impress God, then you might get into heaven. Okay. The Bible doesn't teach any of those things. In fact, nothing really teaches any of those things. It's how we please ourselves and appease ourselves. That it'll all be okay. But no one has anything to stand on for any of those things. And the Bible teaches quite contrary to that. The Bible believes that after we die, we face judgment. And after we die then, we give an account before the Creator of all. We give an account before Him of how we have lived and how we have kept to His standards. Now, I think for many, this again can be a deflective moment. I mean, I have five children, and so usually when you discuss with the children, particularly the younger children, you say, who's done this? No one's ever done it. It's always somebody else that's done it. So some people just have this idea that I haven't done anything wrong, it's just him or her, you know. Okay, yeah, thanks for playing. But you know, when we stand before the Lord, there won't be any finger pointing. There'll just be a finger coming from the Father to you as to how you've kept to his standards. Not your standards, but his. And so I just want to take a few moments to readdress us and inform us of his standards. Because they're in the Bible. They're in Exodus chapter 20. They're known as the Ten Commandments. And I want you to compare yourself to these commandments. Because it's to these commandments that you'll give an account on that day. And here's what I don't want you to do. As we go through these commandments, you're not assessing the person next to you. Okay? You're not doing that. You're not assessing your spouse, for those of you that are married. That will not lead to a good Christmas at all. You are assessing yourself and I want you to imagine that if you've only got a week left to go then you're meeting your creator by Christmas and this is his standard commandment number one you shall have no other gods before me Jesus described that command this way in Matthew he says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart all our mind all our soul and all our strength. Not just sometimes, not just some of the time, but all the time, consistently, we need to be sold out for God as our Creator with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And the moment we don't do that, we've already fallen at the first commandment. We've already sinned, and we'll have to give an account for why. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself any idol. You know, I used to think of idols as golden calves, so I thought, yep, never done that. Probably okay with that one. But an idol in the Bible is anything we give more attention to and devotion to than God. Something that stirs our emotions way more than God. It can be a whole list of things, can't it? Football, soccer, food, sleep, music, work, relationships, kids, stuff, my house. 
The moment we give more attention or devotion to a thing or a person or a concept than God, it's an idol. So we've fallen at the second commandment. We've sinned before the Lord. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Taking the name of the Lord in vain is any irreverent or jestful or disrespectful use of the name Lord and Yahweh and God. Now Jesus himself says, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. And the moment we've taken the name of the Lord in vain in a way that's irreverent or jestful or disrespectful, we've fallen there as well. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. To keep one day and every seven days set apart for the Lord. Set apart to worship Him. Set apart to give Him praise. Set apart to recalibrate ourselves to the reality of who He is and we are. We need to rest before Him. You know, before I was about 16, 17 years old, I went to church every week, but I think I probably worshipped for a matter of minutes every week and rest wasn't even in my vocabulary. I had no idea of giving a day to the Lord. I just thought every day was the same. And yet the day at the time when we stopped giving a day to the Lord, a Sabbath day rest, God himself tells us, well, and you failed in that commandment as well. Number five, honour your father and mother. For all those kids listening, it's not just sometimes, but always and consistently. As a child, I used to look for the footnote connected to that command, the unless, unless, unless. I couldn't find unless. It's just always there. You're just always called to honour your father and mother. To honour them in your tone, in your language, in your posture, in your desire and in your life. Number six, you shall not murder. This, this is where it gets a bit more exciting because you think at last... There's one I haven't done. You know, I don't recall murdering anybody, at least not this week, nothing's happened. This is usually the one where we actually get excited about until you read your Bible and you read 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. John says this, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. Oh my. The moment we hate somebody, and we avidly hate them. John tells us, well, it's as if you've murdered them in your heart. Then You're a murderer before the Lord. And so you've broken that commandment as well. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. You know, the Bible's clear, it's not rocket science. Sexual intimacy with anyone we are not married to is sin before the Lord. And then once again, Jesus ups the stakes. He says, well, actually, if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully... He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Number eight, you shall not steal. If you've ever taken anything, whether it be a big thing or a penny chew from the shop, which I used to do, well, that's another story another day. (laughs) Because my kids are listening. But the moment we steal something, according to the Bible, then we've fallen short of his glory because we're not called to steal. And that's sin before him. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony. People like the phrase sometimes, oh, it wasn't a lie, it was a little white lie. That's great. It's not in my Bible, the phrase white lie. It just says lie. And it also says you shall not give false testimony. We're called to speak truth like Jesus does all the time. We're called to represent truth like God does all the time. And the moment we don't, 
we lie or exaggerate, which is in effect a lie to make us look good. We've given false testimony. Number 10, you shall not covet. The moment when we crave something that doesn't belong to us, whether it be a person or a thing, doesn't make any difference. The moment we want something and covet something that is somebody else's. The Bible's clear then that we've broken that commandment as well. You know, these commandments, when you stop comparing everybody else to them and instead compare yourself, don't make good reading, do they? I mean, who amongst us has never done any of these things? And the Bible makes it clear, no one amongst us has never done any of those things. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God made us, He created us, He created us in His image, and He made us to worship Him and love Him and find our identity and our joy in Him and to keep His commandments. But we didn't. We rejected Him. We don't want any of that, thanks very much. I'm just going to live my life, just get lost. And that's what leaves us with a serious problem. In fact, our greatest problem. See, because of our sin, the Bible is clear that we are cut off from God. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear too dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. God's holy. He's completely separate from sin. He can't just hang out with our sinners and turn a blind eye to it as if it's no big deal. And so there's now a great chasm between him and his holiness and us and our sinfulness. There's a great chasm between us and the Father, the one who made us. That's a fearful thing, but what's even more fearful is because of our sin, we are in a collision course with his wrath. D.A. Carson writes this about his wrath, I think it's so sobering. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that he demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive these people. I don't really care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. And so he would. If God was just turning a blind eye to mankind's sin, including yours, He would no longer be holy. He would be morally insufficient. He would no longer be just. He would ultimately no longer be God. 
And what we discover then through the Bible is that there is therefore not a more terrifying event to come in future history than the coming day of God's wrath. The writer of the Hebrews says, man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And then he goes on to say, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Revelation, John says, for the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? He's had a vision about that last day of what it will be like. And his assessment is, for the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? You know, there is not a more terrifying day in future history to come than the day of God's wrath. And in our sin, we are on a collision course with it. In our sin, in the natural, you and I are on a collision course with that day of wrath. We're on a collision course with His righteous opposition to your sin. And the day of wrath to come, there will be no escape from it, no relief from it. And what's clear in the Bible is following it, if we are found in our sin, the punishment, there will be no end to it. We will be forever alone, in eternity, before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God as a consequence of our sin. God is good. God is mighty and majestic and worthy of all praise, but He is not altogether safe. We would be making a massive mistake to make God like Santa Claus, to domesticate Him just into this little kind old man that we might want to pop and see now and again. God is good, but he's not safe because he's holy. And for us in our sin, then, we are cut off from him and we are on a collision course with his wrath. But he is good and he is loving. And herein, then, is the good news of Christmas. This is how good Christmas is. Listen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. How sweet the sound of saving grace, don't you think? God could have left us, and He would have been totally and utterly just to leave us. He created us, He told us how to live, He told us what the situation was, we rejected Him. We decided to exchange the Creator for the created. And I'm just going to enjoy my life here, thanks very much. I don't want to be accountable to you in any shape or form. Get out of my face. He would have been completely just and righteous to completely leave us, but He didn't. In amazing grace and in abounding love, He sent His Son for us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ coming 2,000 years ago on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He was born then through the birth canal of a Virgin Mary. He lived then a perfect life, a life that you couldn't live, that I didn't live. He obeyed all the Ten Commandments in their perfections. Each and everything that God had called us to live, Jesus did it in the full. And then he died a terrifying and substitutionary death in our place at Calvary so that you and I may have life and that in abundance. Is that not the good news of Christmas? Jesus Christ, through His life and His death and in His resurrection, made it possible for you and I to put our faith in Him 
and then receive life and that in abundance. Jesus Christ made it possible that if we had put our faith in Him, we would be completely and utterly forgiven of our sin. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. That's scandalous grace, isn't it? But that's what Jesus has done. Through His perfect life and then His substitutionary death, He says, If you believe in Me, then I will impute My perfection to your life and I will die in your place. What that means is that you're forgiven of your sin. It's scandalous grace. But He begins to look at you through the perfections of His Son. Through faith in Jesus Christ, He made it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father. To actually start communing with the One who made us. The One who, in and of ourselves, we are so far from because of our sin and His holiness. Jesus Christ made it possible through the cross for us to go from our sin to His holiness and start relating to Him again. He clothes us in His righteousness. He declares us perfect because of that. And He says, I will die in your place. I will take the wrath of God for your sin for you. You can relate to my Father now. He brings us back. He justifies us. He restores us. He reconciles us. And incredibly, He doesn't just do that for now, for this bit of time. He does it for all eternity. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, what's clear in the Bible is we can be assured then that heaven is our home. That we will not perish, but we will have eternal life in the context of home. A place where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more terrorism, no more murder, no more sin. But instead a place that as Christians we will call home. We'll have perfect bodies, we'll be able to see and hear and move in perfect perfection like we've never done here. We'll be able to enjoy relationships in a way that we only have a shadow of here. We'll be able to see and enjoy perfection in paradise as the greatest creator of all knits together a heaven made for us, making homes for us even now. Most of all, He will be there. Jesus Christ with all the saints of old in the Bible, all the saints throughout all generations, including all those now across the world that put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. We will all be together singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And what a day that will be. We don't get there because of us. Because of us, hell is our home. We get there through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, heaven is our home. My friends, that is the scandal of Christmas. You know, in Christmas we really shouldn't just see presents and dinner and lunch and even family. In Christmas what we really see is amazing grace. And people who are cut off from Him, dead in their transgressions and sins, He came after and then died in their place so that may have life and that in abundance. That is amazing grace. And when you stop and consider Christmas even deeper than that, I think what you begin to see then is also abounding love. See, the gift of His Son to us was free. But imagine it from the Father's perspective. That wasn't free for Him. His only Son, who He had dwelt with from eternity past. I have five children And when things happen to my children that are bad, that may cause them pain, I want to fight people for them. 
the father sent his son and then he was the one that caused him pain. That is abounding love for the world. Josh Harris says it this way. He says, It is impossible to comprehend all that this cost would have meant for the father to give up his son to come on the mission of salvation. God the Father and God the Son had enjoyed uninterrupted joy and fellowship and communion for all of eternity past. Yet when Jesus came to earth, became a human being, he left his Father's side. He left the glory and perfection of heaven to enter into the poverty and pain of this world. And the Father, out of love for us, gave him up. My friends, Christmas... The story of Christmas is full of his abounding love. See, if you've ever wondered how God feels about you, if you've ever really wondered how God the Father actually feels in his heart towards you, here's how he feels. He passionately and particularly and personally loves you. Definitely. How do I know? Christmas. Christmas tells me that. Because 2,000 years ago, he loved you enough to send his son, who any piece of love that you've ever felt is only a dim reflection of his love for his son. And yet he sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told so that you may have life and that in abundance. And then at the right time, having seen his son grow up as a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs, having seen his son being beaten and then killed and crucified on a cross, the father turns his face away from his son and pours out his wrath on his son for you and for me. So how does God feel about you? Oh, he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. If you ever doubt that, then gaze at Christmas. That's how much he loves you. He sends his son for you. And so, as Lucy asks Aslan, what does it all mean? Aslan, what is this all about? What does it all mean? Well, here's what it means. Everyone in the room, here's what it means. What it means is that hope has come. To every single individual in the room, what it means is that hope has come for you. So if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you then with this reality cause you over this Christmas period not just to get lost in the busyness and all the drama and events of Christmas, but who it cause you most physically and unphysically in your heart to fall on your knees before Him and worship Him. Because this is what Christmas is really about. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and yet Jesus Christ came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told, in grace and in love. So fall on your knees before Him, because He's worthy of all adoration and He's worthy of all praise. He saved you. And that started at Christmas through the birth canal of Mary.
coming on the greatest rescue mission ever told for you. If you're here today, though, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My friends, the way we receive the gift of Christmas is by believing. It's a gift that's offered, but it's only really it's given to everybody. But to accept it, you have to unwrap it. And the way we unwrap it is by believing in Him. And so, my friends, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, if you want to know what it is to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled and redeemed and justified and to know that heaven is your home, it's not about you doing good works, it's not about you going to church, it's not about you reading your Bible, you're praying, it's not about any of those things. It's about faith. So I want to urge you then, believe in Him. Put your faith in Him as your Lord and Saviour. Even today, before you go home or over Christmas, fall to your knees and pray to the Father and say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? And I put my faith in you as my Lord and Saviour. And here's then what will happen. You won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. All of us started the same way. We started by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and it changed our lives, not just on that day, but on this day. So if you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ, I pray, believe in Him. Believe in Him. And would this then be your best Christmas yet? You know, in a few moments we are going to be baptizing some folk who have believed in Him, who have put their faith in Him as their Lord and Saviour. And so I'd like to invite the band to come up to prepare us for that time. But I'm just going to pray as we bring this time to a close. Lord, we do thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the opportunity to pause and consider the gospel. To pause and consider how it all began and how you came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Oh, Father, would, would this quicken our hearts today? Would it steal our hearts and stop our hearts in the midst of busyness? To not only be reminded of what it's all about, but be affected by what it's all about. And this Christmas, would we freshly fall to our knees? Because you're worthy of it all, Lord. You're worthy of all praise. It all started with you. It all continues with you. And it will remain you until we see your face. So you're always worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.